This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is Southpaw. So today on the podcast, we are fortunate enough to have on political writer Matthew Roja, who has written for Salon, Quartz, MSNBC, among many others. Hi, Matthew. Hello. It's nice to see you. Nice to meet you, I guess I should say. <laughs> yeah, nice to hear you. So I've enjoyed your work on Salon.com for quite some time, but as someone who's interested in politics and pop culture, your piece uh, on uh, the politics of Avengers Endgame really resonated with me. And I think perhaps like you, I like to really think through the internal logic of these sorts of movies. So I hope this can be a safe space for us and our listeners to think deeply and kind of geek out on superhero movies. But before I get into that too much, I mostly knew you as a political writer and even as a political pundit. So how did you get started writing about movies for Salon? Uh, I have written about culture prior to my becoming a staffer at Salon. I wrote about culture for Mike.com, for Quartz. Uh, I freelanced for Salon and wrote about culture for them. So it wasn't really just a sudden shift. But I remember there were two movie reviews that put me over the top. I wrote a review for Dunkirk that was picked up by Rotten Tomatoes. And then I wrote a review for Avengers Infinity War that went viral. And so... I got a regular gig as a critic, and I love it. And uh, I've noticed on Salon that you've written a lot of the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe articles. So were you a comic book reader growing up, or perhaps still a comic book reader? I, I read comics. I will say that um, I have friends who would not consider me to be a legitimate comic <laughs> book nerd. If they were to hear this podcast, they would say, no, 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 you don't know about issue number 33 <laughs> of the Fantastic Four, you fraud. But I, I, I did read a lot of comics. I was a fan of X-Men, Batman, Fantastic Four. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I'm familiar with comic book lore and I'm familiar with comic book movies. I would not consider myself to be a super expert to the degree that other people I know are. OK. And would you say then uh, some of your most popular pieces have been your uh, movie reviews and, and uh, writings? Uh, it fluctuates in terms of what I'm writing. I would say that certainly my reviews have been very popular. Certainly my pieces have been very popular. And I will say uh, the articles I write where I delve into the politics of comic book movies uh, seem to do very well. They seem to prompt a lot of discussion. And I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, because I think comic books work kind of like a thought experiment. And it's something we're already familiar with. So it's a kind of a good and fun segue into it. Do you think uh, comic book movies themselves then are by nature political? Because when you world build and have events that can affect everyone, that seems automatically political to me. Absolutely. I would say what, what, what intrigued me about Avengers Endgame, uh, really Avengers Infinity War and Endgame, is that Thanos's argument is an argument that was pretty prevalent at least in Western politics during the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, because of Thomas Malthus. There was a tremendous amount of concern that overpopulation was going to make life unsustainable. And some people, particularly social Darwinists and fascists and others, extrapolated from that that we would need to kill human <laughs> beings, or at least now those are that was an extreme view. I must emphasize this. That was not necessarily a mainstream view, but the diagnosis that Malthus made, the idea that overpopulation is the core problem that makes life unsustainable from an ecological perspective, that concept was a real concept in politics. And the conclusion that Malthus drew, that Thanos drew the solution that he had, I would say, was a bit simplistic. I would say that they basically took a 
real concept from political history and then gave it a superhero villain twist, a comic book villain twist. Um, but I thought the fact that it was grounded in this real argument that was really made was interesting, especially since that's not the argument that he made in the comic books. In the comic books, Thanos did this because he was literally courting death. He was in love with death. Death is an actual entity in the comics, and he did all of these terrible things in order to win her heart. And at the end of the first Avengers movie, there's a stinger with with Thanos in it. He's only in one scene at the very end, so I'm pretty sure if they have the quote on IMDb, I will find it. Uh, they are not the cowering wretches we were promised. They stand. They are unruly and therefore cannot be ruled. To challenge them is to court death. That's what the other says. And then Thanos rises and smiles. Okay, so courting death was used by a different character, not Thanos. But Thanos smiled. And also considering that he was literally courting death in the comics, I suspect the use of the expression is to court death probably was meant to foreshadow that story arc but then for whatever reason they shifted gears and decided to make him a malthusian that's my speculation so by the infinity war and endgame combination movie would you say he became kind of the personification of thomas malthus's ideas the malthusian extreme um i would say he became not the personification but the comic book villain manifestation because I, because I do want to emphasize that Thomas Malthus would have been horrified by what Thanos <laughs> was doing. Um, and, and that's the thing. He, they took, they took a, a, a real political concept, but then because Thanos is a supervillain in a comic book franchise, obviously they're not going to have him apply that concept in a sympathetic way. You know, I, I, actually, here's an interesting contrast. In Spider-Man Homecoming... Uh, Michael Keaton's character, Vulture, has a more sympathetic motive for what he's doing. He is a small businessman who was essentially boxed out of his own industry by a big guy, Tony Stark, and decided, I'm just going to do what I need to do to provide for my family, and it's the right thing anyway because I was screwed over. And that's an example of somebody who has a more sympathetic motive. Or another example, Killmonger in Black Panther. Killmonger, I would argue, is very astute in his observations about geopolitics, about racial inequality, about the oppression of people uh, through imperialism, through colonialism, about economic exploitation. I wrote a whole article about the politics of Killmonger in that film, he is somebody who has valid political arguments. The methods that he chooses uh, in order to implement his goal eventually become villainous, but even they aren't extraordinarily extreme. He doesn't want to kill half of all humanity. He's not genocidal. Thanos is not in the same category as Killmonger or Vulture. Killmonger and Vulture are sympathetic uh, in varying degrees. Thanos is not sympathetic. What he has going for him in terms of political depth is that when they developed his backstory, they based his philosophy off of a philosophy that actually existed before they then turned it into something that was absurd. And that's kind of the crux of why I really wanted to talk about the politics of the movie, because Thanos, especially in Endgame, ultimately became, you know, the genocidal mad titan. But he was a bit more sympathetic in Infinity War, I would say, where ultimately in the conclusion of the two movies, he was defeated. But his economic interpretation of environmental politics wasn't defeated because afterwards I saw a lot of headlines, especially after Infinity War, where it was like, hey, Thanos had a point. So do you think Avengers gave a, a new life to the Malthusian fears in pop culture? Or do you think the filmmakers were actually being critical of the Malthusian trap? I think the filmmakers, I think there's a level of sympathy for it because we live in an era of significant ecological exploitation and degradation. 
we have global warming. We have rampant pollution. You know, over one million insect species are expected to go extinct within the next few decades, which is going to devastate the the uh, food web. So I suspect they were trying to, in a subtle way, comment on those concerns that exist in our real society. Um, but again, it's a comic book movie. Um, and it wasn't as bold as Black Panther, which actually had the chutzpah to really directly comment on real world issues. I think they chose Malthusianism because it's a few steps removed from real world politics, because that's another point that's worth making. Most scholars today do not think Malthus was right. Most scholars today do not think that overpopulation is in its own right unsustainable. Now, when you have overpopulation combined with industrialization, when you have unchecked uh, business growth in which resources are consumed for profit and there isn't any way of making sure that this is done in a sustainable fashion, that's where you have the problems. But a lot of the conclusions that Malthus drew, scholars today would argue were inaccurate. So if we were to think through the snapping where, you know, half the people go away, would that even solve anything or would it just delay things or possibly even make things worse than it was before? Well, first of all, and this is to me the most obvious moral problem with the snapping is I like the way you put that, by the way, it's a good portman. <laughs> it's a good portmanteau. Uh, but the first and most obvious problem is if your goal is to save lives and you're killing half of all <laughs> living creatures, it's, it's cutting off your nose to spite your face. Uh, but the other problem with it is you're absolutely right. It would only delay the inevitable. Eventually, those populations would grow again. Um, so you really are only, it's a stopgap measure. Plus, I would add, and this is something the movie doesn't address, when Bruce Banner slash Hulk, I guess we now call him Professor Hulk, brings <laughs> all of those living creatures back, that's going to be a major drain on resources because now the population will have basically doubled it, it, overnight. Honestly, I thought about this. One of the big flaws in Avengers Endgame, I think having there be a five-year gap was too long. Why? Because it raises all of these questions about the implications. First of all, Spider-Man Far From Home, it's already been revealed. All of the same characters from the first movie are in this one, even though since five years have passed, some of them should be in college now. <laughs> uh, so there's that plot hole. But also just in general, I think, like I said, it raises too many questions about the logistics of how society would function when, I mean, there are 7 billion people alive. So 3.5 billion people suddenly poof right back from the dead. There was a great article, I, I think it was The Onion or The New Yorker, but I'm not 100% certain. I don't remember where I read it, but it was basically like some guy just poofed away and his and his wife moved on and got remarried and said, and I'm living with my new husband in my home. And all of a sudden, my old husband comes back and he's like, thanks, Professor Hulk, for bringing me back now that my wife has left me and moved on with her life. <laughs> <laughs> you truly did me a solid. But no, like, like my point is that I think if it had been a shorter span, I think it would have it would have been these questions would not have arisen because you do then wonder about, you know, how society is going to function, how it's going to adapt. To talk about plot holes also, didn't in Infinity War when Thanos did the original snapping of his fingers, he was injured, you know, prior to that, but he seemed otherwise fine from you know, using the power of the gauntlet. Yet in Endgame now, all of a sudden, using the power is lethal. That's another good point. <laughs> um, although, to be fair, he had just been, uh, he just had Thor uh, put an axe in his chest. He wasn't in great shape. <laughs> so the question is how much of that was the gauntlet and how much of that was that he had an axe in his chest. Uh, it's hard to say. Yeah, when you have an axe in your chest, you know, you got bigger problems. Yeah. No, I mean, like, I feel, yeah, I, I, I didn't hate the fact that five years passed. I just thought it was, I thought it created a lot of plot holes that did not need to be there. And uh, something you mentioned earlier about going back to Malthus, you said a lot of his ideas was very popular with fascists and social uh, Darwinists. 
we hear the term social Darwinism a lot, especially online, especially if we're young, we see it in memes or on Reddit or whatever. But I don't know if we all know what that means. And I'm not even quite sure I know what that means. Could you kind of explain what that term is? And You mean social Darwinism? Yes. Social Darwinism is, it, it's actually, it's exactly what it sounds like. Darwinianism is natural selection, survival of the fittest. Social Darwinism is the idea that in society, the best, the brightest, the strongest, the whatever, whatever qualities you think are associated with someone who should survive, those are the people who will survive. And social Darwinism has been used to justify a number of political philosophies, in my opinion, almost all of them, if not all of them, bad. Um, but like, for instance, if you're a capitalist, you would argue that we don't need the government to regulate things because in a capitalist system, the best will rise and the worst will fall. It, it was used um, to justify eugenics. It's basically social Darwinism is it's similar to Malthusianism in that it's not really a an ideology. It's just a concept about how the world works that can be, then be used as the building block to an ideology. So would you say there was a lot of like parallels, maybe not even intentionally, but with Thanos and like dictators of the past or even like eugenicists? Absolutely. I think, I mean, and this is what I wrote in my article. I do think that Thanos was genuinely idealistic, but I also think he was a megalomaniac. And what happened in Endgame was his megalomania overrode his idealism um, because at the end, he basically says, I don't even care about, you know, saving life in this universe. I'm just going to create my own universe and kill all life. So, you know, that's the thing. Obviously, his professed ideals were a cover for his own megalomania. And that got the best of him. For me, one of the biggest political things about Avengers Infinity War and Endgame wasn't even what was in the movie, but it was what the movie left out. Uh, there's this idea of capitalist realism. And I think it was uh, one of the other Salon writers, Keith A. Spencer, in the article Superheroes of Neoliberalism. He, he quoted Frederick Jameson, where the quote goes, it is easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism. And that seemed to be the bigger political, like, meta narrative of Avengers or just the biases that people have, which like, I think even Neil deGrasse Tyson was like, why didn't he just double the resources? But nobody was questioning the system itself that uses up or how the system allocates the resources. That's an excellent question. Um, and I would agree. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I am not the biggest fan of Batman. I was as a kid. I was as a kid. I was as a kid. But if you think about it, this is a man who is a multi-billionaire, one of the richest human beings alive, living in a city that by all accounts has severe poverty due to income inequality, and he spends his money not helping to eradicate poverty and create social justice through organic methods, but so that he can dress up like a bat and beat up poor people. You're right. I mean, a lot of us like Batman early on, but especially like those of us who go through a political awakening and we become more sympathetic to social justice or income inequality. I remember there was a point where I was like, wait a minute, let me reconsider Batman and Bruce Wayne here. He's kind of an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, he really like, and that's the thing. Um, and, uh, you know, I wrote an article earlier this year that uh, some people did not like where I argued that Black Panther was a better movie than The Dark Knight, uh, which which I think for a number of reasons is the case. But in terms of the politics, I will say that the politics of The Dark Knight, I don't think were very well thought out. I think the character of the Joker is brilliant, but the character of the Joker is also the personification of nihilistic anarchy. Which is, which is a political philosophy. I'm not claiming it isn't, but it's not exactly an influential political philosophy in the sense that you don't see entire world movements saying, let's burn it all down. Um, so I really view the Joker as being less of a political figure than an archetype of a certain worldview. His worldview, I guess you would say, transcends specific politics. And in terms of the, uh, the Batman character, well, again, this is a very wealthy man who dresses up as a bat 
and goes around and, and beats up criminals. Um, he uh, doesn't really address any of the systemic problems in Gotham City. And the only real attempt to discuss politics is when he monitors everyone's cell phone so he can find the Joker. <laughs> and here's the thing. I've heard some people interpret that as a neoconservative argument. I think it's almost giving the movie too much credit. I think it was kind of cowardly because on the one hand, he destroys it at the end in order to restore Lucius Fox's faith in Bruce Wayne's integrity, which would seem like he's condemning the method, but the method works. He finds the Joker using that method, which would seem to legitimize it. And I feel like it was the movie wanting to have its cake and eat it too, and seem like it was taking a position on political issues, but not really doing so. And I'd have the same criticism of The Dark Knight Rises, where Bane sounded like an Occupy Wall Streeter, but then it tur- but then it turns out he never really cared about any of that. He just wanted to blow up Gotham because because reasons. <laughs> um, and so it's like I feel like those movies like hinted they they acknowledged that these issues exist, but they didn't really take any kind of stand. They just kind of said, "Hey, we're smart. We know that these things exist." That was about it. (laughs) I will say, though, I don't know if it's art imitating life or life imitating art, but especially with the Joker and even like kind of Bane where he says some stuff and then it doesn't go anywhere. It seems to kind of speak to Internet troll culture. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, Bane is very popular among the alt-right. Yeah, and the Joker, too. I think Joker is very popular. Maybe not even alt-right, but the 4chan kind of uh, nihilist, uh, just do it for the lulls kind of... uh, I don't know if you would even call that politics, but that kind of subculture. I actually had an encounter with, do you remember, do you know who Andrew Anglin is, the founder of the Daily Stormer? I know the Daily Stormer. I don't, I didn't know who the founder was. His name's Andrew Anglin. Um, And a few years ago, he wrote a piece attacking me for being Jewish because I wrote something criticizing Donald Trump. And at the end of it, he quoted Bane from the Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> and at that point, I was unfamiliar with the fact that Bane was this popular alt-right meme. So I wrote a response to him, ridiculing him, because A, Bane is the villain of the movie. So why is this the guy you're quoting? And B, the movie was co-written by David S. Goyer, who is Jewish. So you're using a Jewish writer's words to attack Jews. Um <laughs> And uh, he was like, he was like, yeah, I know he's the villain. And like, yeah, I know that David Goyer is Jewish. I I just I just thought it was good anyway. (laughs) Uh, So that was uh, that was that was when I first learned that apparently they really like Bane. And really, I think a lot of it's just because he's kind of like the stereotypical ubermensch in terms of his appearance. He's he's white and he's muscular and all that stuff. He breaks Batman's back. And he does say some things about how he doesn't like the rich. So I think that probably was pleasing to them. Let's tie this back to Tony Stark. Would you say that Bruce Wayne was similar to Tony Stark at the beginning of the Iron Man franchise? Because you talked about the character arc of Tony Stark in your article. So how would you describe the evolution of Tony Stark? How did he start out? Was he similar to Bruce Wayne at the beginning? Yes, I think that's a, that's a fair point. I would say that they were both billionaire playboys uh who whose superpower is being incredibly rich um i would say the key difference is that like like i like i wrote in the article uh tony stark evolved in the first iron man movie in iron man 2 especially he was uh what we would think of today as being an ayn rand kind of libertarian there are there are scenes from Iron Man two that are very directly referencing Atlas Shrugged. So this is not me reading into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is what the authors put there intentionally. Um, and then uh, I would, and then really, I mean, the turning point for him seemed. I mean, in, even in the Avengers, he doesn't trust Shield. He spies on them. So he's this big anti-government person, and then. In Avengers Age of Ultron, he realizes that his hands are not necessarily the safest ones, that he is not all-knowing, that 
he is not the most brilliant, perfect person who ever lived. And that when he makes mistakes and he is all powerful and unaccountable, innocent people die. And that was a turning point for him. And then in Captain America Civil War, he learns from that and tries to redeem himself by insisting on accountability for superheroes. From being a libertarian playboy to an advocate of oversight and reasonable government regulations, it seems like. Yeah, he, he evolves. And so does Captain America, who I actually think his character arc, I do not agree with. He, he started out being this, you know, Boy Scout patriot fought in World War II, trust the government, trust Uncle Sam. And then for him, the turning point was Captain America, the Winter Soldier, where uh, he learned that Hydra had infiltrated S.H.I.E.L.D. I think that taught him not to trust people. And then, uh, obviously, in Captain America Civil War, he uh, his belief in individual freedom causes him to abandon uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. and to abandon his, his, his literal S.H.I.E.L.D., his mighty S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, and I actually think that on that issue, when I wrote several articles about this at the time, I think Iron Man was right and Captain America was wrong in Civil War. Um, and then, you know, also in Avengers, I think Captain America's final decision to just, uh, to just uh, you know, create an alternate timeline spanning almost 80 years and poof any of uh, Peggy Carter's potential children out of existence <laughs> was kind of evil. <laughs> yeah. So did they kind of flip then? Would you say it was uh, Captain America becoming, well, he's not a billionaire, but kind of this super individualist libertarian? Yeah, I think they absolutely flipped, uh, which is, which is, which is, in that case, it's good writing. Um, and I'll say this much about the Captain America story arc. Up until the very last scene in Avengers Endgame, while I did not agree with his political views, I didn't think it was bad writing. And I want to make that clear. Just because I don't agree with the decisions the character makes doesn't think that I doesn't mean that I don't think the writers did a good job developing those decisions and developing the character. My criticism of the writing is the is his decision to basically stay in the World War II era with Peggy Carter, even though that's going to create an alternate timeline. Uh, it raises all kinds of creepy questions about his relationship with her great grandniece. I mean, <laughs> what's he going to do when she's born? He's going to be like, Hey, uh, Peggy, um, I made out with her like once <laughs> now I'm old enough to be your grandfather, but like that baby, I like, like, yeah, it's kind of creepy. Um, or it might be his like related to him somehow. Yeah. It's just like, and again, I don't feel like it was very well thought out. It's actually kind of a very selfish decision. Also, it doesn't even really make sense because Captain America was all about his duty. And then he suddenly abandons his duties in order to live with his long lost love in a way that, again, could create a ton of paradoxes in an alternate timeline. But here's the thing. We, the audience, know that Chris Evans's contract is up and that this decision was made in order to give his character an appropriate send-off, but within the context of the movie and that story, the decision is completely out of nowhere. Because Steve Rogers didn't know that he was a fictional character played by a guy named Chris Evans who didn't <laughs> want to do this anymore, and up until that scene, he had not given any indication of wanting to quit. So... It also means if this is the same reality that the whole movie is taking place in, that he had to just sit out while all these bad things were happening. Yeah. Which also seemed like out of left field. Yeah, that means all these things, like he could have stopped. Okay, so he comes back in 1945. So he could have stopped, I don't know, the Kennedy assassination. <laughs> could have He could have saved people, 9-11. Uh, you know, there are so many events in history that he could have played a role in helping. But here's the thing. If he does play that role, then he's changing history. Which means the only way for him to have done that is that he literally did nothing. He just became a recluse for like 78 years. I kind of wondered if this was kind of an Easter egg of his own for another movie that'll explain what the hell happened with that down the line. Maybe I'm being generous. Uh, 
I don't know. I mean, I'm sure they, uh, maybe they will. I don't know. Honestly, I think if they're smart, they should just forget about this. You goofed. <laughs> you goofed with the with, with the Captain America thing, and you goofed by having it be five years. But apparently, all of the movies that are coming after this are going to ignore. That's another thing I wonder. Black Panther's Kingdom. What happened in Wakanda during those five years? They were on a holding pattern. They were. <laughs> who was in charge? Did Mike Pence take over? Who, <laughs> who, who was in charge of uh, of Wakanda during that period? Um, or uh, yeah, like you know, that question is. It's just there's so much. The movie does not hold up that well, and I and I, as I wrote in my review the plot holes were distracting. It doesn't mean that there wasn't a lot to enjoy, but I found the plot holes, it took it made it difficult for me to suspend my disbelief. Going back to the, uh, the Captain America, Tony Stark split, which split up the Avengers, and it was an ideological kind of split. How much of that parallels with our own two-party divide? I would say, in, at least in Captain America Civil War, Iron Man was the more liberal candidate and Captain America was the more conservative candidate. Uh, at least if you're talking about the specific issue of government regulation versus... Because really, and I made this point in another article I wrote, Captain America is saying superheroes, i.e. people in society who have tremendous power, should not be regulated by the government. We should recognize that these are superior people and that we can trust them to do the right thing. And Iron Man was saying, uh, Sokovia, you know, that city where we built a giant killer robot and thousands died? That kind of proves that you're wrong. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, but that is in a way similar to the argument that a lot of conservatives make, which is that the people who are most successful are the who have the most power are there because they are the most worthy. And therefore, we should trust them and that the government should not be trusted. And the liberal, the liberal response to that is, look at all the bad things that these people do when they aren't checked. That proves that they need to be checked. There's actually a quote from Tony Stark that you put in your article about limitations. Uh, I'm paraphrasing, but limitate, if, we, if we don't accept limitations, we're no different than the bad guys. Exactly. I think that really just said it right there. The differences uh, in politics between one side of the Avengers and the other side, and it may be in a small way that is kind of a, a difference in the two-party system. One party thinks one way about limitations and regulations, and the other side thinks another way about limitations. Exactly. Um, and listen, there is a point where Captain America is right, because remember, in Captain America, the Winter Soldier, the big government that he trusted wound up being full of traitors and spies. So it's, it's not like, and also there is something to be said about not wanting excessive regulation. It's a question of balance. I just think on that specific issue, because let's look at the real world implications. If there are superheroes in the world, should people who are not superheroes be able to hold them accountable? I think the very obvious answer is yes. I think there's a new horror movie about that, where it's like a superhero uh, bad guy terrorizing people. I think it's called Brightburn. Yeah, Brightburn. That can happen. They can be bad too, so we should definitely have some kind of oversight. I wouldn't, for a moment when you said that, I knew it was Brightburn, but I thought you were going to say Breitbart. <laughs> yeah. It's a horror movie about, about someone with way too much power and he uses it to destroy the world. It's called Breitbart. Yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's something to that. Now, now, going back to something you said earlier about Tony Stark being like very Ayn Randian, like the book Atlas Shrugged. For those of us who aren't like political wonks, can you tell us a little bit about who Ayn Rand is and what Atlas Shrugged is and why it's so influential to conservatives and the right? Well, Rand was a Russian immigrant to the United States whose family had been quite prosperous uh, under czarism. And then the Bolsheviks essentially took away everything. So she developed a lifelong hatred of all forms of collectivist ideology. And uh, she came up with her own philosophy called objectivism. And by the way, she adamantly denied being a libertarian. She adamantly denied being a conservative Republican. 
She insisted that her philosophy was its own self-contained ideology and that she did not owe any debt to any other philosopher except Aristotle. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, she did not view herself. She did not want to be viewed as a conservative Republican. It just so happens that when it comes to specifically economic issues, she was what we would consider to be an extreme libertarian. She thought all forms of collective government were inherently tyrannical. And the purpose of her books, which I had the displeasure of reading, they're basically giant bricks of horribly written characters <laughs> who only exist to be moved around to spew exposition and to give long-winded speeches about her philosophy. But basically, they are about the creative individual. And in the case of Atlas Shrugged, it's the idea that all of these people who are super rich are there because they are the best and the brightest. And if we're going to insist on taxing them more in order to pay for social welfare policies, well, they're just going to leave society and move to a utopia where they can do whatever they want. And by the way, I would I would love to see that happen because you'd see a bunch of billionaires realize that they don't know how to build indoor plumbing. And, <laughs> and like, I would love I'm surprised this parody hasn't been made uh, where like it's like, yeah, we're going to be like Atlas Shrugged. The world will miss us. So all the billionaires just leave and everyone's like, oh, my God, we now have money to pay for what we need to have a functioning society. <laughs> and all the billionaires are like, oh, my God, it's so hot. <laughs> it's so hot. I need air. I need someone to fix my air conditioner. Well, you have to pay him. No, I am a brilliant man. And that would that's that's how that would play out. I think that kind of has happened in small scale, right? There's these uh, rich anarcho-capitalists who try to go to Puerto Rico or Acapulco, especially those involved with like cryptocurrencies. And they try to create this like Ayn Randian libertarian paradise. And then it just turns into it turns into Mad Max. It turns into hell. Yeah, because here's the thing. And it's just like their their concept of reality is entitled and wrong. The way I look at it, it is the secular version of what 500 years ago would have been the divine right of kings. You know, centuries ago, monarchs uh, justified having all of this power by saying that God wants me to be king. Well, we live in the West. Most of our societies are not theocratic. Therefore, elites need to find a different way of justifying being an elite. And they do so by saying, well, I'm the best, I'm the brightest, I'm the smartest, I'm the greatest. And that's why I am where I am. And the problem with that is you are where you are because you live in a society that provides you with the resources and the opportunities to be where you were. You know, you might be a brilliant computer engineer, but if you didn't live in a society that created all of the technology that you used and all of the if all of the knowledge that you learned through studying, if we didn't have a civilization that needed computers in the first place, who's to say that you wouldn't be in the same position as any other person who is impoverished? So obviously I have a very skewed view toward, toward Ms. Rand. You know, she was a uh, Alan Greenspan was one of her acolytes. That's what I've heard, which is weird. <laughs> Her nickname for him was The Undertaker because he wore all black. <laughs> no, like, she was, the point is she is, in terms of her influence on conservatives, I like to say that they cherry pick her economic ideas because it's convenient, but, like, I mean, she was also a militant atheist, like, very militantly atheistic. Uh, she had no countenance for any kind of religion. She thought that Christianity was a gateway drug to socialism. I like she had a lot of opinions. She was extremely pro-choice. She would have been very much opposed to what's happening in Alabama and Georgia and and states like that right now. So uh, she was not like she was conservative. Uh, the right wing has focused on the aspects of her for her philosophy that are validating to their belief that the rich are better and that's why they're rich as opposed but there are plenty of things she believes that they did not or that she believed that they do not why did you end up having to read her books anyway it was assigned i had a, <laughs> I had a terrible english teacher 
This is a sign in English, huh? Yeah, it was high school too. And she's like, you have to read this book. It'll change your life. And it did change my life. I lost weight from all the vomiting. <laughs> Actually, it brings me to another uh, question. How much of our political ideas as just mainstream pop culture inadvertently comes from popular media, whether they be books like hers or just popular books in general, movies, TV shows, video games, comic books? How much of our political education just unconsciously comes from popular media? Uh, that's an interesting question. I don't have an answer off the top of my head. I think, I think people do draw general conclusions based on popular media. Um, I mean, like, I don't really have, that's an interesting question. I don't have an immediate answer to that. I wonder about that because with the influence of Avengers, I just saw so many people like tweeting and Facebook posting about Thanos having a point. They're like, what he did was wrong. It was extreme, but guys, come on. He has a point, right? And it's like, no, he doesn't have a point. <laughs> don't say that. No, I mean, he did have a point in the sense that, at least when you're talking about Earth, because remember, he did this all over the universe. But in terms of Earth, I mean, in terms of every animal that isn't a human being, it probably would be helpful if half of all the humans in the world vanished. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, like, but then again, half of all the animals vanished. So that brings me to a, a point that you made in your article, something that Captain America says to Black Widow that I think is a point where like the filmmakers are literally nodding that, hey, this is an analogy about Earth and environmentalism. Oh, yeah. How we saw a pot of whales in the Hudson River. Um, and again, like, you know, I mean, I mean, whales might benefit. Who knows? <laughs> I, I, it's it's hard. I, I'm just wondering, like, what if it was like because he said it was completely random. But like, what if he accidentally there's some endangered species and there are only a couple hundred left? And he randomly gets rid of, like, the ones he gets rid of means that, like, the old, the ones that are left are either old or they're all one gender. And now they go extinct. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> like, there are only 10 animals in this particular primate species left in the world. And he got rid of the five, the five <laughs> men. And now it's, <laughs> and that's it. That's, he didn't think that one through. <laughs> and also, all the animals are not using up the resources equally right it's really just like kind of the intelligent beings are using up all the resources nature has figured it out they have figured out a steady state system where they you know they reach homeostasis right we as humans if we're just talking about planet earth we're the ones who haven't figured it out i'm just thinking this is a tan this might even this is a tangent bordering on non sequitur but i'm just thinking so like if there was like an animal that was that was just vanished and then was abruptly returned how is it going to adjust? <laughs> like, you know, like there was a pot of whales in the Hudson River. Okay. But the whales that were taken away are going to be in the middle of the ocean. They're not going to know where that other pot is. They don't have GPS. They don't have email. So I'm, I'm just saying, and like I said, that's the problem is when you think through the implications of it, that five-year gap to me just raises, so, like you'd need a whole movie accounting for all of these questions for that gap to be filled in a sense it seemed like they just did that to have a device to make tony stark's sacrifice even more of a sacrifice right he's sacrificing this five-year-old kid now not that the kid is dying but that he's gonna have to say goodbye to the kid i think that's exactly why they did it um and so basically they screwed up the entire marvel cinematic universe so that Tony Stark could have a touching goodbye scene with his four-year-old daughter. <laughs> uh, good job. <laughs> yeah, kind of like the Captain America goodbye. Just screw up the whole universe just to have another touching moment. You're right. You're right. <laughs> it, it, it wasn't like it really does not hold up that well. I, I got so much shit for my review, which was actually a good, a positive review. But I was like, there, I was like, there are, there are a lot of plot holes. And you're like, no, there aren't. You're just too <laughs> stupid to understand it. Because I pointed out the time travel plot holes, too. Um, and yeah, it's just. Even though we're picking on all this stuff, I think we can both say we're fans of the two movies. They just, you know, some stuff doesn't make sense. I actually did not like Infinity War. I thought that end, I thought Endgame was better because it had a more streamlined story. I thought you said in your article, though, the ending with the snapping 
like made up for all the bad stuff that you watched prior to that moment? No, the snap, the snapping. Yeah, I liked the snapping. That was at the very end of Infinity War. There's two and a half hours before that. That didn't make up for it. Uh, yeah, yes, it did. It did kind of. I just, I, I just thought Endgame was a more coherent movie. I guess would be the way the word I would use. It was more coherent than Infinity War. Having said that, I am a fan of the Marvel Cinematic Universe overall. I admire the ambition of this of the two part uh, Thanos movies. I guess you would say. I thought that, that that was commendable. And, you know, I'll give them this much credit. They took risks. They took, they took risks, and I have more respect for filmmakers who take risks, even if those risks don't pay off, than I do the ones who just make cynical cash grabs. Like, I had to review the Aladdin remake, which I thought was just soulless. Uh, <laughs> beyond any beyond any like i really thought like soulless is the word i used in the review it just it was a movie that did and i'd say that's true for all the live action disney adaptations like beauty and the beast you know uh you know dumbo these are movies that are being made to cash in on a classic original and i will take avengers infinity war for all of its flaws over aladdin any day as a sci-fi fan, I did like Endgame in that it taught people a different configuration of time travel because they even talked about Back to the Future and those type of time travel movies where it's linear. It's always in the same timeline. They took us a, a step, you know, up and sideways where it's like, okay, now the new form of time travel movies is alternate realities, right? It's, it's a step up more towards, you know, uh, I guess if time travel were real you would be creating multiverses. Indeed. Uh, and, that, and that is true. And by the way, I'm pretty sure that's why Loki uh, escaped in Endgame. I have a feeling I have a feeling that's going to become a relevant plot point later on. Now, we were talking earlier about Batman versus Black Panther as far as political movies. Out of all the comic book movies you've seen, no matter what studio is making them, which would you say was the most political movie out of them all? Was it Black Panther? Uh, well, I would say Watchmen. Oh. Have you seen Watchmen? Yeah, the uh, Zack Snyder one. Yes. Now, I've read the, the graphic novel, and the graphic novel is far superior. Yes, I have to agree. But it's still, it's a good movie. It, the problem with Watchmen is that it really should be a miniseries. It should not be a movie. There's too much plot for it to work in two and a half or three hours. But Having said that, what's in the movie is explicitly political. Uh, like, I mean, it, it, Richard Nixon is a character. Yeah. So it is definitely about politics. I'd say that's the most, if you're talking about comic book movies in terms of the mainstream superheroes, like mainstream DC, Marvel, the, that those superheroes, I'd probably say Black Panther. And, and with Watchmen? Remind me again, was the political statement about it, was it kind of like Civil War? It was about oversight of superheroes and why we should have that? Uh, Watchmen was a murder mystery that eventually was revealed to be a larger plot about how to unite humanity, essentially. It's kind of Machiavellian, right? It's like, do whatever you got to do to get us to the right place. Yeah, I remember, if I recall correctly, I think Alan Moore said that there were elements of G. Gordon Liddy in the character of the comedian. Ah, I actually thought that was how Game of Thrones was going to end. The whole fighting the White Walkers was going to drag out to the final episode, and that was the thing that was going to bring all of Westeros together. And then that didn't happen. <laughs> nope, no, it did not. No, and I just looked it up and I was correct. G. Gordon Liddy was one of the inspirations for the comedian. And for people who don't know, who's G. Gordon Liddy? G. Gordon Liddy, how do I put this? For the, He was a major figure in Watergate. Um, and he, uh, during the Nixon administration, he, uh, was, uh, he worked for Richard Nixon's 1972 re-election campaign uh, and basically uh, tried to uh, engage in dirty tricks against Democrats in order to make sure that Nixon won. Now, did he actually spend any time in jail or was he pardoned right away? Um, he was, uh, he was, uh, he was in fact in prison. He received a 20 year sentence. It was later commuted to eight years. 
Uh, he was uh, charged with uh, burglary and illegal wiretapping. <laughs> he was a great guy. Yeah, all the good stuff. <laughs> yeah, he's all. He was also extremely right wing. He later became a talk show host and was very, very, very extremely right wing. Yeah, as a kid, I just remember him as a TV like pundit and talk show guy. It was only like later on through encyclopedias that I realized, oh shit, <laughs> this guy is a criminal. Oh yeah. Why he is beloved, uh, your guess is as good as mine. Same thing I have to ask about Oliver North. <laughs> he got a TV show too, right? He he was like hosting stuff on cable. Like, yeah, this is Ollie North. Ollie North literally uh, orchestrated a deal in which we sold uh, we sold weapons to Iran so that we could fund a, a an extreme right wing militant group in Nicaragua. That that was what he did. This really happened. This is not a movie. That's the Iran Contra scandal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, these are this is we've moved far away from the realm of politics of uh, comic books. By the way, <laughs> we have. You know, with Captain America being at the very end, where it's the old Captain America, I wondered if that was just kind of a way to say, hey people can now travel through the multiverses and this is all some scheme to get us 10 years from now to some X-Men Marvel crossover event. That would be amazing. Do you think the X-Men movies are going to be in better hands now that it's back into the fold? Uh, I think it'll be interesting. From what I've gathered, they're not going to be uh, having any crossovers from the, like they're going to basically reboot the characters and make them unique to Marvel, which I think is the right thing to do because if you think about it, the premise of the X Men movies is incompatible with the premise uh, that's been established in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Why do you say it's incompatible? Because you've had all these adventures in a universe where mutants exist, and if those adventures were occurring concurrently to what's going on in Marvel in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, don't you think? Someone would have brought it up. Hey, you know all these superpowers? <laughs> hey, Nick Fury, you know how we have all these super superheroes? Uh, what about these mutants? Can, shouldn't they be part of S.H.I.E.L.D.? No, we don't accept mutants. I'm Nick Fury. I'm a great man, but I do have a prejudice against mutants. That's why I was thinking multiverse, right? Maybe they exist in parallel universes, and then, I don't know, somebody opens a hole in space-time, and they finally come together for some mega, mega crossover movie. This time, they're not saving the universe. They're saving the entire multiverse. That, that would be interesting. I'll say that much. <laughs> All right. I think I'm getting too out there now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's about it. I don't have any other questions for you. So where can people find you? Uh, they can go to salon.com. My last name is R-O-Z as in zebra, S-A. You can read my work there. And I love to uh, hear from you.